Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mom Podcast. This week, I am joined by Chef Kevin Deshanes. He is a private chef. Uh, he's worked with a bunch of different celebrities, athletes. He's based out of Newport, Rhode Island, does the food and wine kind of festival there, and a bunch of other different events. He's done like yacht chef events, cooking competitions, food truck race stuff. He appeared on Food Network a handful of times, does morning shows, all this kind of stuff. He actually reached out about coming on the podcast, and I kind of put it up for people to vote on. It was kind of a fan vote, you know, if this is somebody that you'd be interested in kind of hearing their story and everything. And overwhelmingly, everybody said yes. I think it was like 93% or something of the vote tallies. We sat down and talked about his career. Uh, He's got a cookbook, Beyond My Chef Code. It's kind of a mix of his career and then also some recipes and stuff like that that he published that you can find pretty much I think like on Amazon or you know any other kind of book publishing site you should be able to track it down uh, you can follow him on Instagram too as well at chef kev d1 is his Instagram handle and he also has a website it's pretty much the same thing chefkevd.com it's got different information about his upcoming appearances, um, stuff that he's done, where you can kind of find him. He's always kind of bouncing around doing different stuff. So this is a little bit different of an episode in the fact that he's a private chef, but a lot of the stuff that he does is these kind of big events and, you know, working with different celebrities, Garth Brooks, Tommy Lee Jones, stuff like that. So we haven't really had anybody on that has done those types of things. People have worked at food and wine festivals and stuff like that, but them constantly doing it is not something that's in a lot of people's background where this is pretty much what Kevin does and he does private events too as well and different parties. And so we kind of talk about all those things and touch on everything. Interesting episode. It's different in kind of the usual became a private chef after working in restaurants for a bunch of years and you know now I have my own clients and my own city kind of thing you know we always kind of like exploring different edges of kind of the chef world too as well and this is kind of like a different edge of the private chef business um, and private catering and stuff like that too as well you can follow us too on instagram at spoon mob or on twitter facebook tiktok all that other stuff spoon mob or spoon mob one Check out the website, spoonmob.com, links to all the episodes, pictures, profile updates, all that stuff's there. You can find it at the top of the menu. There's a contact portal too as well. You can write in questions, comments, feedback, or send them directly to us, spoonmob at yahoo.com is our email. Appreciate everybody who's been writing in. We got a couple messages last week, so we pretty much respond right away or like the next day if you send anything in. So appreciate the positive feedback, people enjoying kind of what we're doing and always cool to see everybody's recommendations. We'll check those places out if we haven't already as soon as we can um, and, you know, hopefully be able to reach out to chef, owner, sommelier, whatever, and eventually have them on the podcast. And if we do, you know, we'll let you know. Some people are more interested in doing podcasts than others. Um, so it's always kind of this game, you know, you get some people that are like, yeah, I'll do it. And then you kind of never hear from them again or yeah, I'll do it. And then stuff comes up and you're trying to schedule, reschedule, whatnot. Also make sure to follow the podcast, whatever platform that you use, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, whatever, we're on all of them. Just hit the follow or subscribe button. All the new episodes are download straight into your feed and your player. Uh, they release Thursdays, 1 a.m. Uh, we are going to have some mini update episodes coming up too as well. Those will drop on Tuesdays. Uh, same time, 1 a.m. will just be on Tuesday. So you guys will be getting some double episodes uh, weeks here coming up. Excited for some returning guests and to talk about kind of new stuff that they're doing and working on and everything like that. So always an open invitation to anybody who's ever been on the podcast before. You know, this is a place that they can come talk about menu updates, new restaurant, new concepts, new events, whatever. 
we want this to be a platform that, you know, the people that we really feel are doing cool things in the industry and pushing the boundaries that they can come back to and use and get kind of their message out to the people that kind of follow along where it's a little bit different. If you just post something on Instagram, yeah, all your Instagram followers will see it, but it might not resonate with them as to why you're doing what you're doing, the story behind it. So that's kind of the idea there for people coming back and being able to explain kind of what else they got going on um, since the last time that they've been here. I will say the audio quality in this episode is not our best work. We cleaned it up as much as we could, but Kevin's microphone, it's not the best. So the first two minutes are a little rough on the ears, but then your ears will acclimate and it'll be fine. Basically sounds like Kevin's on speakerphone, so it's not inaudible or anything like that. But the first two minutes of the interview might be a little bit of a shock, but stick with it. It'll balance out. We cleaned it up, so we did a bunch of stuff to it. So it's it's pretty good, and you know I think you'll enjoy the interview nonetheless. But without any further delays, here's my conversation with Chef Kevin DeShanes, a private chef based out of Newport, Rhode Island. Cool. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast and taking some time out of your morning here. Haven't had any of your food myself. Was kind of looking into your story after you guys kind of reached out as well and kind of put it up, you know, on our Instagram. I didn't know if people would be interested in an episode with someone of your background and everything, and and they overwhelmingly were. So, and then I kind of got into researching some of your career and what you're doing. I read your book. It's a pretty fascinating career. A lot of time in the Northeast, and now you're kind of doing a bunch of different stuff, food and wine festivals. And I think you're also kind of running a culinary director type role too as well. So I want to get into kind of what you're doing now in Newport and everything you're working with, but always like to kind of start at the beginning. How did you kind of first get involved with cooking? Because I was reading through your book, you know, a lot of it had to do your early years with your grandmother, and that was a heavy influence for you, right? Yeah, so like a lot of um, kids, you know, your first culinary food memories are with mom or grandma, happened to be with my grandmother. And it wasn't an overwhelming amount of actually time spent. It was more a handful of Sunday meals prepared with her, where I kind of got there early and watched her making the sauce and doing all that. And that was really instilled in me because as a nine-year-old, you don't really know how that all comes to the table, right? So I got to see the process for the first time. Italian grandmother, Sunday gravy, putting out a huge spread on Sunday for lunch. And then what happens is everybody sits around for four hours and has coffee. And then next thing you know, it's dinner and you're having leftovers and you're still eating and picking and doing all that stuff. So that was the first hospitality culinary kind of memories that were instilled in me at a very young age. And I took those with me throughout my culinary career as a warming hospitality feel rather than just throwing food on a plate to kind of send somebody on their way. So those are the first initial memories that I had. And you never worked in any restaurants during high school, right? No, my first restaurant job was in college. So right after high school, uh, moved to North Carolina, went to school for business in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I just got a job at a local bar restaurant that was near campus, making sandwiches as a short order cook. One week, the grill guy didn't show up, and the next thing you know, I was being trained on grill. And, you know, you get that kind of move up that way and then move on from restaurant to restaurant and learn different stations and hone your skills that way. But that's the, the very beginning of the actual industry was 18 years old, uh, fresh in college, fresh in a new town. Also a great way to meet people when you're in the restaurant business. When you walk into a restaurant, there's servers, bartenders, hosts, other cooks, you know, you know, door guys, the whole nine yards. So you get an instant family when you move and you work in a new restaurant. So I know it said, you know, you moved to Greensboro, you know, North Carolina there, and you were living with a friend, but what 
were you kind of aiming to pursue before you fell into restaurants and started working? You know, you're going for a business degree. Did you have a vision as to what you were going to kind of pursue? No, I was a, uh, a big time athlete in high school and uh, I like to have fun and party and do all that kind of stuff. So I really didn't have that direction yet. You know, luckily, I was connected with a couple of people who were already in the restaurant business. You know, many years later, that business background c- coupled with the restaurant background would be huge. I didn't know it at the time, but I just knew that I was going to do something. And also the camaraderie of a, of a restaurant, much like a, a, a sports team. So it kind of meshed well for me. Yeah, I didn't really know. I just uh, took the job as a job. And many, many years of that made me find out that I was really good at it. And I was a hard worker and, of course, loved to make money. So all of that kind of propelled me into the restaurant world. And you never went to culinary school, right? It was all just in the kitchen training for you? Exactly. Worked with some great chefs. Um, the first 10 years was just kind of bopping around from restaurant to restaurant. One place you're uh, a pizza cook and then you learn how to do saute and then you work your way up. And then next thing you know, you're a sous chef, you know, after the first 10 years of just put your head down and work all these stations, all these different restaurants. And then after that, I kind of realized that wow, I'm pretty good at this. I can really learn. I really love this. And it was an up and coming business at the time. When I started, it wasn't, uh, nobody wanted to know who the chef was. Nobody wanted to open kitchen. Nobody wanted to see who was slicing your prime rib and slapping it on a plate. They just wanted to eat. 10, 12 years into my career, that kind of flipped where the chef became the rock star and the whole food network boom. And, you know, everybody wanted to talk to the chef. I had questions and where are you sourcing this from where nobody cared about that? Uh, just a decade before. So uh, it was a good time for me to get in and get that first 10 years under my belt. And then, you know, when that craze hit, I had already honed my craft for over a decade and got my 10,000 hours and, and and did all that. And so now it was, it was time to take the next step for me. Looking back on, you know, your career path, everything that you've gone through culinary school, is it something that you regret not doing? Is it something you'd recommend to anybody coming up wanting to be a chef now? You know, what's your kind of take on culinary school these days? I always tell people to get a mix of both um, because throughout the course of my career, I've had different classes and a pastry this and and a few things kind of plugged in and it's very helpful. And I think young kids in culinary school today should definitely focus on that, but also work in a restaurant while they're in culinary school, because that's a huge difference in school itself. So I think a mix of the two is huge to get that base with techniques and temperatures and knife skills and all that stuff that you need in the restaurant business. Um, But to see, can you hang on a Saturday night when you're doing 550 color covers? Also, because that kind of real world experience will let you know, maybe I don't want to do this or maybe, hey, I love this and want to do it. So, of course, I think it's great to go to school, but I I always tell people, get a restaurant job while you're in culinary school so you can see that real world experience. So after you graduate, you wind up working at a place, Spring Garden Brewery and Restaurant in Greensboro for a little bit. That's like your first restaurant that you're working at. And then eventually you move back northeast. What led you to kind of going back, not home necessarily, because I think you wind up doing a bunch of seasonal stints, you know, working in Vermont during ski time and then Cape Cod during summers and stuff like that. So what led to kind of you going back and then deciding to be a seasonal chef instead of landing in some place, you know, like Boston is a major market there? Yeah, I mean, I have worked in Boston, Providence, and all over New England, but as a young chef, I think the seasonal thing is a really cool thing. One, you get to meet new people. 
every kind of six months. You know, I did Mount Snow, I did uh, Block Island, I did Cape Cod. Just bounce around, not really knowing what you want to do, um, finding that fit, uh, working with some cool people, and making connections. Who I still have friends from the last thirty years of my career from all over and every place I've worked. Which you know, if you keep those relationships, you never know in ten years. Somebody's opening a restaurant. Somebody's now the food and beverage director at this huge resort. And they're always reaching out to people that they've worked with in the past. Um, so that's another thing I tell people is keep those relationships and because you just never know. But yeah, Spring Garden was the first kind of real restaurant that I worked at. I worked some pubs and stuff prior to that, making sandwiches, doing that kind of thing. Really, you know, a taco bar on Tuesday night at midnight for college kids, stuff like that, you know, as you're kind of learning. But Spring Garden was, was the first um, real ingredients with a saute station and a sous chef and an executive chef and they're making their own beer and that was kind of the first real restaurant and then I headed back to New England. The seafood stuff for a young person is, is a really cool thing. One, you can make a lot of money in a very short period of time. I'm based in Newport now and I have friends that are older than me that have been doing that seasonal thing for 30 plus years and they make huge money in the summer in Newport and huge money in the winter in Kilton and they just... You know, they're either single or married or it works for them. For me, it wouldn't work as, you know, having little kids and a wife and being settled down doesn't work anymore. But it's a really great way to spread your wings, see the country, you know, live on a mountain, live on an island, live in a city, like whatever. You can have all those kind of different things going on and being paid really well to do so. Why do more chefs coming up not do it? Because I think a lot wind up staging. You know, they stage overseas if they can, which is great. But being a seasonal chef, you could call it even being a chef mercenary if you want, where you're just kind of bouncing around. But that seems like a really smart alternative to working somewhere for free. And you can still learn if you get linked up, you know, obviously with the right places and they're willing to kind of teach you and, and bring you along too as well. Why do more people not do it? I think a lot of people do. It's just uh, not a lot of people know about it. I didn't have the luxury to work for free at that point in my life. I wasn't, my parents come from middle class. I didn't have a trust fund or anything that would allow me to just go off to France and work and live and travel and do all that. So this was a way that I could do that and still go to the beach on Monday and Tuesday, but work 70 hours a week and make real good money. And also you get to eat there, you get to drink there, you make friends there, so you all hang out together. But it is a really cool way to be able to see different parts of the country if you wanted to go down with it like this time of year. I'm still doing it to an extent, uh, but not in a restaurant. So being in New England in the wintertime, sometimes I'm up in Vermont at the ski mountains doing chef dinners and things like that. But you know, I'm down in Florida probably six or seven times in the next two months. Um, so it's kind of the same idea, go where the money is, right? My clients are down there now because they're they're horse people or, you know, I just got back two days ago from being with Tommy Lee Jones for a few days. His wife, Dom, they're friends of mine, but also great clients of mine. She plays polo. And so Wellington is like the horse capital polo this time of year. So uh, I'm still kind of doing it. I, I'm following where I can go and have fun and and still do my craft, but also make money. So that really never changed. I'm just not tied to a, a single restaurant. Whereas when I was doing Mount Snow, Cape Cod thing, you know, you go up there and then that's done at the end of the season. You take a couple of weeks off, you head down to the Cape, get settled in, do it again. But I'm still doing it to an extent. I travel the country as a private chef. So for me to be able to see new places and meet new people, it's still kind of the same idea. 
then after you do the seasonal thing for a couple of years, you wind up moving back, you know, pretty close to home up in New Hampshire. And we're working up there for a little bit and kind of describe the area as a sleepy college town. What led to you kind of deciding to go back home instead of maybe going to a different part of the country or anything like that? I think at this point, I've been away for a little while. I want to get close to family again. The restaurant scene in the, the town next to where I grew up was kind of up and coming. There was new breweries, new restaurants popping up. It was a cool kind of easy thing for me to slide back in there. So I worked at a couple of restaurants around town and then landed a, a sous chef position at this place called Aqua Bistro which was farm to table before farm to table was the buzz. We had the farmers coming in with the herbs and the foragers with the mushrooms and all that stuff. And we're talking 20 plus years ago, 25 years ago that this was happening. People, if you were in the restaurant business, didn't know about that. Now, you know, you turn on TV, everything's farm to table, ocean to fork, you know, herbs and mushrooms and foragers and all that. And it's, it's big time now, but we came to sous chef there. Worked under a great chef who's been around forever, who was a corporate chef at Omni Hotels, and he taught me quite a bit. And he ended up moving on, and I stepped into his role as the executive chef at a fairly young age for the time, was 28. But I knew that restaurant back and forth. I knew all the stations. I knew the ordering. I worked with the front of the house and had a great relationship with the GM. So it was a perfect fit and time for me to become an executive chef. And really, as I say in the book, to spread my wings culinarily because there wasn't a lot of farm and table going on at that time. So to be cooking whole fish and breaking down whole animals and making sauces from scratch and using fresh herbs directly out of a garden on a farm a mile away, that part of it clicked for me. So you, you can go through my career and say, look back now, 30 plus years later and say, this is where that happened. This is where that happened. That's really where the bug of being a chef of a restaurant that used fresh ingredients and, you know, a local seasonal focus where we changed the menu four times a year at least. We did heavy specials where we'd get in 30 pounds of halibut or whatever fish and when it's gone, it's gone, that kind of stuff. That was really cool. Always go back to that point in my career because I had already been doing it 10 plus years at this time, maybe more, but it was like, okay, next level stuff. Now we're working with fresh ingredients. Now we're working with farmers. Now we got the fish guy coming in with a, with a whole 30 pound striped bass and we're breaking it down. So that was a really cool turning point in my career as well. When you get to that restaurant, did you have any inkling, anything that kind of tipped you off that the executive chef was going to be leaving after a year? Was he purposely kind of like grooming you or did he just wind up leaving kind of randomly and it was next man up kind of thing? No, yeah, I mean, it was pretty random when he left. He was an actual chef and partner at the time, so I didn't think really there was much chance that I would be able to take over. But as we know in this business, things can change in a day. One weekend you're there, one weekend you're not. So uh, the circumstances that happened, that he's out of there now, and they're like, okay, we can go do the hiring process, or we got this chef here who's been here 60 hours a week for the last two years. He can just step into the role and take it over, find a, find a new sous chef and that sort of thing. But no, I didn't know at the time before higher that that was going to happen but thankfully for me it did and then it opened a lot of doors for me so what led to you wanting to do the catering doing the weddings and the events because you wind up moving back after a couple years you know you move back down to or maybe for the first time actually moving to newport rhode island most chefs don't really like doing the weddings the events the banquet stuff they won't tell you publicly that you know on the record or anything like that i'm um, just because it's another you know business avenue and i don't blame them but if you get an honest opinion i'd probably say 90 to 95 percent of chefs they don't like doing the banquet stuff 
and they don't like doing breakfast, short order kind of eggs and all that stuff too. So what led to you wanting to do that? Well, a few reasons. The traveler in me wanted to, you know, after I had been back in New Hampshire for many years, was ready to do something. And uh, Newport, obviously a beautiful place on the ocean, an hour from Boston, so much going on uh, year-round, really. The summer is obviously booming, but it's it's definitely a year-round market here in Rhode Island. But I can tell you that the offsite catering is extremely hard work, and that's why a lot of people don't like it. It is extremely long hours, hard work. Moving grills, doing setup, breakdown, stocking trucks to go to a wedding. Um, but this opportunity was at a, a catering company called McGrath's, which they they focused on old school clam bakes, New England style lobster bakes, clam bakes, that sort sort of thing. When I got there, they were doing that almost strictly lobster and clam bakes, and we started to introduce new catering options and menus and different things that maybe they didn't want a lobster bake at all, that now that I was there, we could do. Um, but, you know, they had already been in business for 50 years, so that traditional lobster bake was their niche, and we expanded it when I got there, and I worked with a great bake master, his name is T.R. McGrath, who worked for his father, who worked with his father, so I learned that whole lobster bake side of it. I got to tell you, I was doing it in some of the most beautiful locations you could ever imagine, on the beach, on the hill, overlooking the Newport Bridge, at a mansion, all these things that, you know, a kid from a small town in New Hampshire would never might be able to see unless he was on vacation. It was an extremely busy place where they would have six and seven and eight weddings on a weekend, all different menus, all different locations. So me as a chef was doing all these logistics and making sure this truck was packed correctly with all this food and this thing was going to the right place and all these things. So looking back, that has a huge hand in helping me be able to plan logistically now as a private chef where if I'm flying to Florida for a dinner party the next night, I got to make sure there's food there. I got to make sure I have the right equipment and the kitchens and all that stuff. So again, a building block. But yes, to your point, it is a very, very hard life, the catering, especially offsite catering, where you have to set up a kitchen. You know, I've been to... Uh, you know, a place on the ocean that has a little lodge with zero kitchen, zero electricity. So you have to set up a catering tent and build a mobile kitchen on site and work out of there. So it's just given me maybe more well-rounded as a chef to be able to be prepared for every, anything. Because right now as a private chef, you know, I walk into a house, I have a cookbox with X, Y, and Z that I know that I'm going to need. But I'm depending on that kitchen is going to have some of the things that I need. And I've done it so much that there are so many things you can plug in. Okay, you don't have this, I'm going to use this. You know, where a lot of restaurant chefs are, you got your pans, you got your meat and plots, you got, if, if I don't have that, it, the night's going to go shitty. Doing the offsite stuff and having to be able to think on the fly really makes you be able to just shift gears and adjust. I know we don't like to use the word pivot anymore after COVID because it's been used so much, but it's really, when you're offsite, which I do all the time now, you have to be able to, you can't just say, well, sorry, we don't have that. So maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not going to work tonight. You have to make it work, whether I'm grabbing something out of a client's fridge or, I'm, you know, you just have to make it work. So off-site catering, no tough, uh, definitely gives you a good base to be able to do all kinds of different cooking and logistics in your career. Then you wind up, after a couple of years, moving to Burlington, Vermont, you open your own restaurant. How did that opportunity come about? Did somebody reach out to you that they, like met you through one of the catering events and was like, hey, would you ever be interested in opening your own spot? Or like, how did that materialize for you? So that was actually a high school friend of mine and I would go up and visit multiple occasions. And we would always say, if a space comes up, this would be a great place for a restaurant. 
because Burlington, Vermont is a bustling city. It's Vermont, they have the cobblestone streets, Church Street, which has bars and restaurants and shops and Lake Champlain. It's a really picturesque New England town, but it has a hospital, it has a college, it has, it's an hour from Montreal. So very happening place. So it was just one of those situations where I said, I, I would always like to have a restaurant here. I was doing very well for myself in Newport and making a good living in the catering world. And because, you know, people come from all around to come here to, to have their wedding, to have events. So I was very comfortable, but he reached out to me and said, this space has come available that overlooks Lake Champlain. You want to chat about it? So we chatted about it and we made it happen. A place called 156 Bistro. And that was a true labor of love. You know, we didn't have much of a budget, but we had the space. So, you know, I was up on ladders painting and moving kitchen equipment and doing all the things that are involved in opening a new restaurant, as well as writing the menu, the wine list, uh, all that kind of stuff. Getting purveyors, that's where that business background kind of kicked in right then. And that was an amazing couple of years for me. We had a third partner, and so we were successful while I was there. I... The partnership I didn't think was going to work out long term, unfortunately, which happens in business. And when money gets involved with things, it changes things. And it doesn't always become about the food and the experience and the hospitality anymore. I saw the writing on the wall that that wasn't going to be a long-term thing for me. And although it was one of the most painful things I've have ever had to do because I've, you know, having your finger in every single facet of opening a restaurant, it becomes like your baby. It's yours. You know, you painted it, you made the wine list, you get the menu, you hired all the staff, came up with the concept, did all that. So that was a tough, but also a learning experience in that, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. It was a really cool time in my career. You know, we had an open kitchen, very festive, fun atmosphere. We had big garage doors that opened to to overlook Lake Champlain, and we were just one street down from Church Street. So very happy in the area. I'm still really tied in with those guys. Um, I still work with a guy from Vermont Wine Merchants who runs Burlington Wine and Food. So I go up there at least once a year for a weekend and do demo and, and do chef dinners. And let me tell you, since 2009, since I was up there, Burlington has come a, a really long way as far as restaurants. There's Head of the Wood and Farmhouse and all these new breweries and cider houses. And it's really a booming kind of place for the hospitality now. Well, when I was there, there was a couple good restaurants and it was up and coming, but it was a lot of pizza joints, draft beer bars, things like that, because it was college town. So there was only a few that were on a kind of fine dining bistro style like like I was doing back then. But now there's a ton. So very cool experience. My first ownership as a chef and owner took a lot away from that experience. So a lot of chefs, you know, it seems like when they open their first restaurant, something happens and it, it doesn't make it for them. They wind up, you know, leaving, partnership, whatever kind of dissolves. What exactly leads to that? Because you would think, you know, when you open a first restaurant with however many partners you have, at some point, everybody is on the same page is like, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to offer. So where does it kind of go sideways? Is it just basically like when you start getting into kind of the P&L data and it's like, well, we want to cut this stuff out of here. But then the creative side of the opportunity is like, well, we don't want to cut that because that's kind of what we're known for. That's why I wanted to open this place. Like, or, or is it really just kind of case by case basis? Because it's fascinating to me that when you look at most chefs, the first restaurant that they open is not the one that they're at the longest. Well, one is a learning curve, right? You learn a lot of what it takes to be a restaurant owner, and especially with partners. Again, when money becomes involved and you get a couple years into it, 
to your point, the P&L data is one thing, but then everybody gets ideas, and it may be the person who, maybe the partner who's there only a few hours a week and is traveling with another business that has all these ideas, and the chef that's there for 70 hours and knows exactly what's going on and what would work and what wouldn't, um, and they butt heads that way. But it's not... Um, just because it's your first restaurant. I mean, look, celebrities, the biggest chefs in the world are shutting down restaurants. So it doesn't mean just because it's your first one that you have to move on. But there's always a million reasons. And there's so many moving parts in a restaurant between staff and equipment and leases and clientele and weather. And is there construction on your street that week and people not showing up? There's just so many moving parts that it could be for anything. But for me, it was just... You know, I'm a big picture guy. I always look into the future, like, how's this going to be in five years? And it just, I could tell it wasn't going to work out. Semi amicably said, you know, you guys can keep the name, sell my steak, and I'm, and I'm going to move on. And I'm, I'm happy with what I built here. Restaurants close for a million different reasons. After you leave work at a few different places, you know, your chef and GM at the Centro Martini, which I think was in. Rhode Island. So you go back there, but then you wind up in Boston for a little bit as a executive chef at Washington Square Tavern. Somewhere in there, you also make your first appearance on TV. So how did you wind up landing that? I think it was with Chef Wanted with Ann Burrell was kind of your first appearance, right? So how did that come together? Yeah, so I was at Central Martini as a chef and GM. It was a cool martini bar in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Amazing drinks and martinis, uh, really cool food. We try to do funky pairings and stuff like that. But it was one food network, I believe 2012, 2013, was really getting big. And it was all the rage. And all these shows were coming out. Somebody reached out to me, hey, you want to try out for this show? I just sent my info, did a quick little video. Hi, I'm Chef Ken, blah, 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 I'm working at this restaurant. And I got booked for it. And no, I didn't win it. Anybody who's in the Chef TV world can tell you that. The contacts you make, the producers, once you do one, you know, as long as you don't lop your finger off and make a total fool of yourself, uh, you're going to get some different invitations and some some different thoughts to be on others. So the first one happened then, just as generically as somebody reaching out because they saw me on like a morning show or a local TV mayor D, one of these programs where you're trying to get business for your restaurant, right? So that happened. I moved on to Washington Square Tavern. Cool restaurant, one mile away from February. It was from the table, whole fish, making our own sausage and, and that kind of stuff. But I would, we would have people coming in all the time asking me if I could come and cook for them for different events. And you, you never could do that in a restaurant business because you're there 65 hours a week on weekends, on holidays. There's no chance to do any of that stuff. And at this point, I had been in the restaurant business for almost 25 years and just saying, Am I going to miss every holiday? Am I going to, is this going to work out? You know, it, what's the next logical step in my journey? Ownership is great, but it's a huge time commitment. Um, being an executive chef of a restaurant or a resort is really great, but it's a huge time commitment. My wife and I got pregnant with our first, and I was like, okay, it's decision time. What am I going to do? Still be able to do what I love, which is cooking food and working with ingredients and dealing with people and hospitality and being part of people's events and that kind of stuff. How can we make this happen? And then it just clicked that I've had enough interest in doing events, um, private dinners, the occasional wedding, which I don't love to do either, but maybe I'll do two or three a year for a friend of a friend or a celebrity or whatever it is that I had to take the leap and say, I'm going to start a private chef company. And that's what I did. I, in that first year, you know, I took everything and anything. It was a two-top 
300 miles away and was going to make a couple hundred bucks off it, you did it because the, you know, you're the sole, you're sole responsible for your income now. So that's another thing I tell people that are trying to get into the private chef world. That first year, basically you have to say yes to everything. Even if you're going to make a couple bucks, because in my world, word of mouth is huge and getting in front of people. If I'm at a dinner party with 12 people, two or three most party people are going to have an event or a dinner party, or a wedding, or whatever, it may, or a fundraiser, whatever it may be, and then they're reaching out because they had a good time at their friend's house, and not just get in front of people, do everything, say yes, hustle, 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 just like you did when you opened a restaurant, you have to hustle, you have to market, you have to PR, you have to, you know, you have to do crazy things to get people in there, and, you know, maybe we'll have the luxury to not do that after you do it for a little while, but next thing you know, I had regular clients who I was doing their corporate event every year or their family Christmas party every year or their their lobster bake at their beach house every year. So you start to build clientele that way. And now fast forward seven years later, I can I still work just as hard as I did in the restaurant business. It's just a different style. There's travel, there's logistics, there's ordering, there's menu planning, there's all this stuff that goes behind the scenes. When I get to an event, the cooking part is the easy part. This is all stuff I've done a million times. That is really easy. It's the logistics of it all, the timing of it all, the help. Do I need bartenders, servers, other cooks? You know, am I doing a party for 300? Is it just 15 people that I can handle myself? And what time do I need to leave? Do I need to book plane tickets? You know, am I driving? Like, so all that stuff, but I have a little more control over myself. And I, I've learned a little bit more, really just in the past year, saying no to things that you just can't before I try to stack four things in a row and you're going from thing to thing and just craziness where now it's still crazy, but I have a little more control, a little more say. I have the luxury to bring my family some places that I never would where if I book a job and in Carrington, I say, do you guys want to go to the ski mountain for the weekend? Because I'm already going there to cook. I'm making X amount of money. It doesn't cost me that much more to bring me with me. Um, so I get to spend more quality time. We have a one and a half year old where during the week, I'm, you know, I'm Mr. Dad. Uh, most of my stuff is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, um, unless I'm really traveling to the West Coast or whatever it is. So I'm walking my kids to and from school, which is really cool, which if I have a restaurant at 3 o'clock, I'd be prepping for dinner. There's no way I'd be able to do that. So with a lot of hard work and just hustle to be where I am now, to be able to do that and have a little more luxury and enjoy my family, enjoy that quality time, it was a good move for me. It's not the easiest. There's more stress. You know, you're worried about bringing the money in because, like I said, you're the sole responsibility to bring money into your private chef company. But it's well worth it, and I, I just love what I'm doing now. I think more and more people are exploring the private chef world. You could point to COVID, or you could point to just overall the restaurant industry and different parts of it that people were maybe not so enthralled about being involved with. Um, in terms of whether it's how many hours you're working or benefits, all that stuff. With more people shifting into the private chef world, do you think that will continue? Do you think it will kind of plateau where the amount of people coming and going is probably you know net zero? Or do you think eventually people will kind of shift back to restaurants too as well? Like, Is this a blip on the radar? Or is this something that's going to become the new kind of, I don't want to say thing, but it'll be bigger than what people realize it is now? It's always been a thing, but 
Pre-COVID, people would think if you're going to get a private chef, you have to be rich, you have to be a celebrity, you have to be an athlete. It's really not the case at all. If you have four or five couples getting together and they're splitting things five ways, it's much like going to a restaurant, except you can hang out for six hours instead of an hour. You can drink plenty of wine, not have to leave. COVID really exposed it to normal families because honestly, the beginning of COVID, I was locked down like everybody else for three or four months, not knowing what was going to happen. And then as things slowly started to open up, my world actually opened up before restaurants because there was plexiglass, there was masks, there was nobody knew what to do. How do I act in a restaurant? We don't want to talk to anybody or sneeze on anybody. But people with their quarantine or their bubble or their neighbors or their family that they've been hanging out with for two or three years still want to eat and drink and party and have fun, which is where I come in. You could have this restaurant experience at your house and never have to leave and take your slippers off and not have to deal with masks and plexiglass and are people going to look at you funny if you cough? And so there's a silver lining to everything. And I think that COVID really exposed to people that you couldn't have a private chef at your home without being rich. And it's actually a thing. Obviously, more affluent places like Newport and Aspen, and it's been happening forever. But, you know, some of the places I get inquiries from, it really doesn't matter. There's private chefs all over. So I think it's a, I think it will plateau, and I think the good ones will stick around. But I think the good part about what happened was it exposed people to being able to do events at their house or other spaces that weren't restaurants that maybe they it just never clicked with them before because you're so programmed to go out to dinner or get takeout or that you have to be rich to have a private chef, which is not the case. You've cooked for a bunch of celebrities and athletes, John Legend, Tommy Lee Jones, Matt Light, who was a member of the Patriots, Gavin DeGraw, Isaiah Thomas from the Pistons, uh, Garth Brooks. I think you did stuff for his tour, Red Sox manager, John Farrell, Al Gore when he was the vice president. How does that all happen? Is that just connections? And once you kind of cook for one famous person, athlete, celebrity, it just kind of spiders out from there? There's a little bit of that. When you get into the upper echelon, like not to to my own, but what I'm doing now, if Garth Brooks hears that you work with Tommy Lee Jones and all these people, then it's a no brainer that they know that you know how to deal with celebrities and it's not, and, and you're just coming to cook and you're, they're just as happy that I'm there as that I am to be cooking for Garth Brooks because, oh, the chef's here, we're doing the whole thing. But really, a lot of it is hard work because you know, I have people from my high school and people on social media that reach out to me that say, uh, you're with Garth Brooks and you're cooking, you've made it. But I always come back like, yes, I get the invite, but guess what? The hard work now starts because I have to go and perform and be able to pull this off in a, in a way that they want to have me back, that they will tell their friends about me. I'm not interested in a one-off event just to say that I work with so-and-so. I want to... I want to be able to work with this person multiple times and do multiple events and red carpets and VIPs with them because they trust me and they know that I'm going to handle their event in the way they want. The bigger you get and the cooler people and the cooler things you get to work and do, the harder it gets. You have to hustle and work just as hard, if not harder, to maintain that level. You know, if I was asked to cook for John Legend and I completely sucked it up, I may never get asked by anybody again. <laughs> to do that because you know he had a bad experience so but once you start working with a-listers there's a small group of managers and concierges and things like that that your name starts to circulate around so if you're in this part of the country reach out to chef kev or he also travels so there's a lot of that now at the beginning it was doing really cool events working really hard making sure you do a good job and then 
that will need to be lined up with people who plan big events, who are looking for chefs. And then it just kind of naturally, once you start doing it, and I can put that as part of what I do to work with all these cool people that the other people in that world will feel much more comfortable to bring somebody in because it's just not somebody who's unproven or doesn't know. They don't know how it's going to all come together. You know, building that track record uh, is huge. But uh, once you get, you know, the golf books and the, and the top of the top, the, all those managers and concierges, they kind of talk. It's not, the, it's a pretty small world once you get up there. When you're cooking for someone that is, you know, a celebrity athlete, famous person, do you feel more pressure because you know that if it doesn't go well, that could be it? At the beginning, for sure. When you're first celebrity, and you're first, you, know, you know, you're doing that, you're definitely like thinking about that. But just like your first TV show or your first morning show, you're, you're worried about the cameras and you're thinking about all that. But after you do it a few times, you know, I got great advice from a chef when I was like, I was going to a new job or I had a big opportunity I was nervous about. And he was just like, go be a cook. It's what you've been doing all this time. You're not doing anything different. It doesn't matter if it's Tommy Lee Jones or your neighbor. You're still going to put out the same product or the same thing that you know how to do and you're very skilled at it. And they're asking you there for a reason. So that was all he said, just go be a cook. So now that clicks with me. Like, you know, I love working with Garth and Tommy Lee, but with Tommy Lee, a lot of times it's just myself and him and his wife and they're five feet away sitting at the table and I'm in an open kitchen talking to them and cooking and we're having wine and a lot of times it's just as fun for me as it is for them. I'm pretty confident in what I do, unless it's something maybe I've never tried before, or this is the first time I'm doing this, you know, and hadn't practiced it or something like that. I would get nervous, but, you know, just be a cook. So that's, that's always in the back of my head. If I'm in a, in a situation where potentially somebody could get nervous, I, I don't even really think about it. I just focus on the food and the hospitality and the timing and that the music and the lighting and all these other things I have to worry about that I don't even... I mean, let pressure get into it at this point. But it took a long time. I mean, 20 years ago, I would have been like, I just had 10 cups of coffee. I'm going to cook for John Legend. And, uh, um, but now it's kind of like, okay, that's really cool and exciting. And I'm just going to do what I do. Who left you the most starstruck? That's a question I get a lot. Being a big sports guy, some of these athletes that I get to work with is really cool because you grow up playing sports for 20, 30 years. And these heroes that you've had, I'm going to be doing something at the Super Bowl which I think is going to be prior to when this podcast comes out, but I'm working with like Barry Sanders and Tony Dorsett and all these NFL legends who won Heisman trophies and are also in the NFL hall of fame. So that to me is like a body of work and hard work. And, and I always have had that athlete mentality where, you know, the longevity and the hard work and all that will bring you to the next level, whether you're, playing soccer or basketball or you're in the kitchen. That hard work, that training, that preparation. Uh, so I think I, I get a little more excited about the athletes and also musicians because I'm a big music guy. But I would say working with a, a Hall of Fame athlete or I did a number one tennis player, Jim Courier. And although I don't watch a ton of tennis, being number one in the world at anything is pretty cool. I, it translates to my world, the sports world. So it's pretty cool for me to work with some athletes too. Is it easier to cook for an athlete versus celebrity where I would assume if they're active, they want healthier ingredients, maybe it's a lot of protein, or does that make it more challenging where you just have this limited box to work in where celebrities could just be like, do whatever, just make sure it's good. 
it's funny because everybody has restrictions now, right? And everybody's allergic to something and everybody's gluten-free or a pescatarian or X, Y, and Z. So it's all kind of meshed together now. For instance, John Legend ate super clean. He wanted a, a whole roast of chicken, some seasoned, lightly seasoned vegetables, a few other things that were super easy. Brown rice, like nothing super crazy, but you still have to execute that at a high level because it's still John Legend, right? So it's harder in different ways. Like sometimes doing the simplest things perfect is the way to go but sometimes that's hard where uh, if i'm doing something fun 20 ingredients that you know you can pick and choose and manipulate but everybody has their own set and their own preferences and there, there are some that just say i trust you chef make me whatever or i can't eat this i can't eat that can you sub that so there's a it doesn't really it's not specific to athletes i did a, an event for 16 people up in the berkshires a few weeks ago and every single person had a different dietary restriction gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan, vegetarian, but will eat seafood, blah, 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 right down the line. <laughs> you know, so it's everybody nowadays has restrictions or preferences. Without naming names, what's like the weirdest either ingredient request or preparation method that you've gotten? Um, not so weird, but I just did an eight-course tasting menu that was all vegetarian. It sounds vegetarian is pretty easy, but once you get past like four or five, you're like, okay, what am I going to do now? What kind of Because there's only so many vegetables and so many fun things you can do. So that was challenging for me as you know, you guy who works with protein a lot and fresh seafood and all that to do eight different dishes in the same meal that happened to be vegetarian. But it's like. Um, you get to a point where you've been cooking for so long that you can kind of plug in ingredients and say, okay, I make this dish with this sauce that the sauce is vegetarian. If I roasted a cauliflower and tossed it in this, it would work. So not really weird, but that was a challenge trying to do eight dishes that were very different from each other because you don't want to, you can't do three soups, right? You can't do similar stuff. So you want everything to be a little different, different style, different flavor. So, you know, eight courses of all vegetarian was definitely challenging. You're uh, running your private chef business, but you've taken on a couple other projects. You're the director of hospitality at The Wheel and also culinary director for the Newport Mansions Wine and Food Festival. So what led to you kind of taking on those events or those responsibilities? What made you want to do that? It's really just working with people and doing different festivals and events and having that chef mentality where how can I help? Can I bring in a sponsor? You know, maybe if you do this on the stage, it would make things easier. Or doing a really good job for somebody, they're going to ask you back, and then they're going to slowly take on more responsibility. So Newport Mansions Wine and Food, which is held here at Rosecliff and Mama House and all these beautiful mansions on the ocean, I traveled around all these festivals, and they were like, well, you're based here. Why don't you be part of this one? So then we had meetings, and I had ideas, and, they, and it was just a great group of people in Somalier and people that run the festival that it's great for me to have something like that here in my backyard. And the World Festival is, um, I did an event here in Newport called Audrain, which is a huge car f event that people come from all over the world and they're flying in there from Italy. And I did a three night um, stint, a guest chef residency at a castle for Bugatti. And so the World Festival came out of that where one of the people involved in that wanted to kind of take this festival on the road. So we're doing an event down in Stewart, Florida at a car museum and we're working with NASCAR to do different events. So it's really just that being a private chef, it opens you up to more opportunity to do a few different things, to have, I still do dinner parties in people's homes, normal everyday people, I love that. 
it's my bread and butter and pairing wine and doing that. That's that's my private chef world. That's what I do. But to do festivals and bigger events keeps things really exciting, something to look forward to, something to be planning all the time. And I've just always been that guy that was like, how can we make this better? What can we do to make this event better? You know, maybe if you move this over here because it's near the kitchen, like really just logistically uh, all my years of doing what I do. And then some of these people are like, well, that works. Yeah, that makes total sense. Why did we never do that before? So very organically where, you know, I was doing festivals and different events and people would ask me back and to take on more responsibility than just be like a guest celebrity chef doing a demo because I'm always looking for ways to make things better, smoother, work with it next year because I want to come back. Just born out of, you know, hard work and wanting to make things better. Do you think people coming up through the hospitality industry, they should, everybody should kind of spend one, whether it's summer or week or whatever, at least some time working at a food festival. Would that be beneficial for someone as they progress through their career? Well, yeah, I mean, 100%. Not only do you make connections and, uh, you know, so food wine first festival, there's wine purveyors, there's food purveyors, there's equipment purveyors, there's tons of chefs, which the best part for me is seeing my chef friends all over the country at these different events all the time. What are you up to? Are you opening a restaurant? You know, check out this new dish I'm working with or this new company. Um, so just the knowledge of stuff that you can learn and take on there and watch how people do things differently from you in different parts of the country. You know, I've done festivals out in Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, and never been, haven't been too exposed to the Pacific Northwest and some of the seafood that they use out there and the cool beers that they're making out there. So you can get not just a lot of knowledge, but also a lot of like logistically you show up and you have, and if you're maybe a restaurant or somebody that's doing a station or a VIP party, how do we do offsite? Because that's a huge thing that, you know, not to name names, but I've worked with a few amazing chefs who have one of or the best restaurants in the world or the country and you take them out of their kitchen and it's a deer in the headlights and that's not a knock on them because they're doing what they've done for the last 20 years and it's amazing and it works for them but if you put them in a kitchen that's not theirs and they don't have a whisk that's the exact size that they're used to using or a hotel pan that's deep enough or they just what do we do we have to go get one and i said well you could use this this or this and it will work fine getting out of that every day day in and day out routine of doing the same thing, using the same equipment, doing the same food. Um, so a festival is a great little bubble of kind of the event world where you can see what kind of goes on, not in your home kitchen. Do you still do any TV appearances still? Or is that kind of, I don't want to say moved on from that world, but have progressed past the point of that being maybe necessary or beneficial for what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're cool. I still do a lot of morning shows. I do another road show here in Rhode Island, like almost monthly, just to make a new dish and talk about what I'm doing and have a great rapport with those guys. I do Good Morning Connecticut, and I've done a Today Show, and it would really have to be a good situation. Some of the stuff that I do that is not televised is so much cooler and mind-blowing and stuff that's on tv it's like for me to get pulled away from that like i just did a, a barbecue event with a chef friend of mine who's brian duffy and we did it on a ranch in dallas actually the the ranch that the tv show dallas was filmed on and then in the competition we went up against six other barbecue outfits from all across the country the biggest names in barbecue and we won which was really cool but it wasn't on tv nobody really knew about it maybe there was one picture on social media 
you know, we, you know, we won a bunch of money for charity and it was really cool. So to get me to go do another competition, I'm kind of at the point now where I'm like judging some stuff. I judge a, a charter yacht show. And so I get to judge five chefs from all over the world who come on these 200 foot yachts and are cooking on the seas. And uh, we didn't mention the great food truck race, which I did, which was amazing, uh, which we made the whole season, seven episodes. We did, I think, 3,000 miles on a food truck in six weeks all over the West Coast and L.A. and Phoenix and Vegas and went to Yuma, Arizona and Coachella and Stagecoach and did all these really cool things. It was a lot of hard work. I was driving through the desert for three hours in a food truck with pots and pans clanging and banging, no air conditioning. It looked really cool on TV, but you didn't see us at 2 o'clock in the morning emptying out the ice bins and scrubbing the floors and getting ready for the next day. Long story short, I've built some TV stuff here and there, and I have some interest in about people wanting to do a show about the private chef world and events and things like that. Um, but it's, I look at it as just a bonus of what I get to do now. Somebody asked me on a morning show or to be on the Food Network or whatever, and it fits with my schedule, I wouldn't be opposed to it. But I'm not really seeking that kind of stuff anymore. Um, but you never say never. Do you think you know cooking on TV is still as popular as it was kind of when you first got on some of those programs like you mentioned you know food network kind of exploded does it still have that same reach or is there just too many different shows that are on tv where there's eyeballs just going every direction where they're not focused on beat bobby flay or there's no kind of main like when emerald had his show on tv like that was huge like but now if he had that show i don't know if it would be the same level because there's just so much other stuff out there no, Emerald was the first show that I saw. You know, I saw shows prior to that with were just a chef in a studio making a recipe, right? Emerald had a band and a crowd, and he was doing the band, and there was people were going nuts, and people were actually eating the food, and he was cut into commercial. It was a party. It was an event. It was the stuff that I do on screen. So that was the first kind of, it's funny that you mentioned that, but the first kind of memory that I had of a show being like, that's a look into what I do. Where the other ones, are like Yan Can Cook and Julie Childs and those early, early cooking shows, is literally just a person in a studio with a pan, do this, do that, and it's very dry. I mean, Food Network is still kind of a big dog, but there's the cooking channel and all these streaming services and all this internet stuff that it, it used to be just Food Network. If you wanted to see celebrity chefs and stuff like that, it was Food Network. So they were massive at the time it seems to me not having enough time to really watch food network that much but it's become a lot of game shows you know like chops like beat bobby flay like these one-off competition shows and that's kind of like 90 percent of what they're showing these days so for anybody who likes the drama and the excitement of a cooking show it's really cool but if you're trying to actually learn a recipe or technique it's not really the place to go anymore. Um, and if you're getting, if you're trying to get on TV as a career, you know, it's like saying that you're going to play in the NFL. Like there's 1% of people, the Bobby Flays and the Gordon Ramseys and those kind of guys that, that make it big and make a career out of it. I take it as kind of a wing, a, a bonus. Uh, yes, it's important. Yes, it helps get your name out there. Yes, you get to work with some cool people. But if I was going to just to be in TV, you know, you do a couple and, you, and you'd be miserable because you're always trying to find the next show. It's a cool thing to do, and it's definitely a bonus, and it definitely helps get your name out there. And if you can put those kind of things in your bio or resume, people these days, it's it's a buzzword, right? Oh, you were on the food truck race or chopped or beat by the flavor. Tell me about that. And that opens up, you know, okay, I'm a private chef now. Maybe I can come cook for you. But 
if you're trying to get into the free network to be a TV star, I, I would advise against it. Yeah, because luckily for me, I was a chef long before I was ever on TV. You know, I was in the behind the scenes in the dingy kitchens for years and years and years and years and years and honing my craft and becoming a chef and not just say, okay, I'm going to get on TV and try to be a chef because then usually you look like shit <laughs> because you don't know what you're doing. And uh, so it's just, um, it's a cool thing to do if you're going to try to be the next Gordon Ramsay. Well, power to you, but it's, it's definitely not easy. You wrote your book, Beyond My Chef Goat. It's a mix of recipes and also some biography about your career and, and everything. What made you decide to write that? To be honest with you, I had an idea to do it. I know I had tons of recipes already and photos and a, a compilation of stuff for, for 20 years of a career. And then what actually made me pull the trigger and do it was after some of these TV things, I got invited to be at the Belmont Stakes, which is a horse race like uh, Churchill Downs and, and Belmont and all, one of these triple count crown races where I was asked to come and do a menu for this Diamond Club VIP and... They said, if you had a cookbook, it would be cool for us to, to give that, you know, to buy however many of your cookbooks and, and we'll, we'll hand it out as part of this premium package. That gave me a timeline. Okay, you have four months. And then I work so much better under pressure. If I have a timeline, I know I need to get something done. It'll get done every single time. If I just have the idea of a cookbook hanging over my head, it's like, ah, I'll get to it when I get to it, right? So that forced me to say, okay, I'll make sure that happens by then. And it'll be out before that. That's what lit the fire to actually put everything together. But you're right. It's, it's just a, it's an early compilation of recipes that I did at different restaurants. Um, a few stories like talking about my grandmother, talking about my first real chef job, owning my own restaurant, and kind of starts at what I'm doing now um, and working with different cool people and doing fun events. But it's like... Um, just an early compilation of some of the stuff I've done with some cool pictures. And definitely we'll think about doing a diversion or something like that, which will be much bigger and much better. But it's just um, an early piece of uh, promotional material for me. Like, it was great to get all that out there and just have people have those few pages of maybe four or five different stages and to get where I am now. And then maybe the next one will be about the last 10 years where I've been doing all these cool things. A lot of the recipes in there are like eight steps or less. Was that intentional? Being a private chef, the simpler the better, right? So the least, the less ingredients that I need, the less things that I need to buy, the less things that are involved, make things easier on me. And I, and I always been the type of chef where it's not always the ingredients that you put in. Sometimes it's the ones you leave out that make all the difference. So if I could put a recipe together with six or seven ingredients and have those really shine, have the protein really shine, be it cooked well, and just use fresh lemon and a few herbs and salt and pepper and things like that, I feel like sometimes that's just as hard as doing a, you know, some of this crazy tasting menu that you'll see with dots on the plate and art and all that craziness, which is, is amazing. But I've always been, keep it simple. You know, there's obviously things where you get much more in depth, but... I wanted to be able to give that to you and say, here's kind of the outline of what you can do with this recipe. You can always add or omit, you know, some ingredients to make it to your flavor and your personal preference. But I just wanted to give an outline of how simple some of this stuff could be. Some people would say, seafood jambalaya, never going to try and touch that. But then you look at my recipe and it's fairly simple. The rice is probably the hardest part. It's like 
just getting in front of people and letting them know it's just easier ways to do things or to grill a steak and just make an easy sauce and make sure it has enough salt and pepper and just do it right and do it simple. So that's kind of where I wanted to go with that. Your food seems to be fairly light in the sense that it's not dense or heavy. There's not a lot of sauce on it or, or anything like that. Is that really a byproduct of just working in the Northeast and cooking so much seafood throughout your career that, that you kind of do things still flavorful, you know, but you're not doing dense cheese sauces and, and all that stuff. Not that you can't do it, but it just doesn't really seem like that's something that you're interested in incorporating with the dishes that you construct. Yeah, I mean, I think focusing on local seasonal product uh, kind of steers you in that direction. Now, I'm not opposed to doing an asabuco in the winter with a heavy red wine sauce and mashed potatoes and all that. I love that, too. Me and my world now, I generally do multiple courses. Four or five courses is a standard dinner party that I do. So I'm not trying to get to the third course so people be too full to be able to eat the next two. So you want to be able to edit what you do. And also, you know, there's a lot to be said about, you know, a seared piece of halibut with just sea salt and black pepper and a little lemon on it is amazing, right? You can make any type of sauce you want and you want to do a blanc and you want to do any of that. Of course, that's going to be amazing. I have this beautiful product here. I want that to shine. I'm just going to add to it and elevate it a little bit. I always try to do a little elevation on something to, to make it stand out a little more than bury it in a sauce, which I know, oh man, I have this soy chili glaze, which is amazing. I'm just going to dump it on everything. You know, it goes back to there was a period where people were using bacon and everything. Now, I love bacon, and I think there's plenty of uses for it. But if you put it in every single dish, it loses its luster, and it's, it's just kind of, it's a crutch. You know, I know if I add bacon to this, it's going to be great. Just letting the ingredients shine. You've had a couple partnerships. Uh, you did like a signature knives with, I think, Rhineland knives, or, or maybe it was Flint to Flame or Forge to Table. Being like an ambassador, partner, sponsor, whatever you kind of want to call it, how involved are you with the actual product? Like, I'm sure some products it's like, hey, you know, would you love to be kind of our spokesperson for this, right? But are there also products where it's like, well, yeah, I'd like to be involved because I actually use this product and I believe in it kind of thing? So everything that I'm part of and that sponsors me or that I endorse is stuff that I use, right? So the Ryan Knives, I, I worked with them for 10 years and they were great. I've since been moved on to Fortune Table, which is a different style of knife that I've ever used. It's a lighter Japanese style wooden handle, which just became easier for me as I travel more and more and um, easier to manipulate. I, I mean, for 25 years of my career, I was using the heaviest Wustoffs and pickles and things, the traditional stuff. That, and so I just got into the Japanese style. So that's why I made the switch there. But I use those knives every single day. People, when they ask me if I'm at a dinner party, what knives do you use? Those are the ones that I have. Those are the ones that I'm using. And I'm partnered with Kiwa Vodka. And that's the vodka that I drink. <laughs> I don't have like a stash of Stoli. But look, I'm, I'm working with Kiwa. No, that's, it's a great product that started here in Newport and that has a slightly lower NDVs, which is good for me as a dad and somebody who's getting older that I don't have time for hangovers, right? But I can still have two cocktails at the end of the day and not feel totally like shit the next day. So that's another one that I use. And so it's just a natural, everything kind of been a natural progression for me. You use this, it would be cool to work with you. Let's do it. And that's how it happened. It's never a situation where like something I never used would reach out to me and I'd be like, all right, sure, slap my name on it. I'd have to 
believe in it and use it and, and have a purpose for it. So if you go to my website and you see my partner sites, all that stuff is stuff that I'm heavily involved with. I've actually been in talks with Fortune Table to do a new cookbook where I partner with them and they have chefs all over the country and we would do kind of a collaboration cookbook. So things that I'm always trying to, okay, what can we do? How can we work together? How can I feature your lives? You know, 5 million people are going to see the major on the great food truck race. That's great for you. How can we capitalize on that and help you sell more knives? Um, because it's only good for my brand as well. If I move the knives that are great and people love to use, I look at it as a win-win. You know, it's it's all the stuff that I work with. The chef coats that I wear, it's either Happy Chef or Chef Works. Those are the two that I've used for the last 20 years, and I love them. I love certain styles from each, and I use different ones for different events. If they send me a couple chef coats to do an event, it's not because I just want free chef coats. It's because I love their coats and I wear them anyway. And I wear them every night to a dinner party that nobody ever sees except the people that are there. So it's going to be something that I believe in and I use and that I like. When you're traveling with your knives, do you ship them or do you check them? I know it's a very personal thing where it's like people build out these chef rolls, you know, these knife rolls, and it's... You could have just a bunch of different random ones, stuff that it's either a family heirloom or it's been passed down or you can't, you know, find that brand anymore. So do you ship it like UPS it or do you check it or how do you approach that? So if it's a, obviously if it's a normal event, I'm driving with my chef roll in the car, but if depending on the event, I will check it. Like for instance, um, doing Sobe wine and food, uh, which is in South Beach at the end of February. And I'm doing a few different events, one with Michael Simon, one, one with Andrew Zimmer. I know there's a lot involved. And I'm going to, I want the tongs that I use every day. I want my knives with me. I want X, Y, and Z. So I'll pack a bag of gear and check it and have it there waiting for me when I get there. If it's a, a house or a client that I worked with before, I know what they have at their house. I know they have a knife set that will work for me for what I'm doing. So although I always used to love to use my own knives, I may not have to bring them. Like for when I just went to Florida, I was with Tommy Lee and his wife for a few days. I knew already what that house had. So I was like, there's no need to check a bag just for my knives and take the time at the airport and the 50 bucks and all that just to have my own knives there. If it's a bigger event that's a lot more involved and I I know I'm going to need a lot of stuff for, I will check a bag of gear. A couple of years ago, you did some certifications with the National Restaurant Associates what do those certs entail? Are those worth it? Or does it really just apply to private chefs like yourself? Being safe, satisfied is something you in a restaurant. So I'm, I'm that and allergy awareness and all that kind of stuff. But really a lot of that came from the food truck race where we needed to get certified at every new city that we went to. You know, you're rolling into Phoenix and your certification in Las Vegas means absolutely nothing. They don't care. They don't want to see it. So they come on your truck, they go through the whole thing and you do it again. So a lot of that's that, but it's also peace of mind for these venues that if I'm coming in and doing an event and they see that I'm surf safe certified, they see that I have allergy awareness, they they see that health inspection, all that. And a lot of people require them. Some of them don't, but it's just a peace of mind to know that this is somebody who knows what they're doing, who's trained to do, to handle food properly and, and that sort of thing. You've done also a bunch of charity work, volunteering, Michelle's Place. Breast Cancer Resource Center, the Light Foundation, March of Dimes. Why are those causes important to you specifically? If you ask me back in high school where I'd be able to be auctioned off to for the Light Foundation for twenty thousand dollars to go do a to go to a dinner party that I do anyway, 
to be able to give that to charity, I would have said, you're fucking crazy. Um, you learn that if you have a platform to be able to do that, it's really being able to help people. And it's not any skin off my back to go and do a dinner party. So if I'm able to donate that money or be a part of a celebrity auction or uh, I went to the Boston Children's Hospital and did a big dinner for all the parents who were stuck there. Being a dad of little kids, I can't imagine having a sick baby. So, so those people who are in the hospital with their children to be able to come down to the chef's playground, which is an open kitchen concept that they have in Boston Children's Hospital, and just eat and drink and like get away from things for 45 minutes, an hour. I mean, I'm more than happy to do that anytime. Being a dad makes you a little more sensitive to all that stuff that you may not have to think about in the past. Um, but if I'm able to use my platform as a way to help, I always will. Is your favorite wine still Freemark Abbey Cabernet Franc? It is, actually. And that's another one. That, that's a situation where, you know, I knew limited stuff about wine. I had restaurants, and obviously wine is very important. But I went out to Napa Valley uh, on a trip and went to actually... Fremark Abbey and the, the vineyard. And when I had that bottle of wine, I was just like, oh my God, I mean, this is the best thing I've ever had. I didn't even know that I could enjoy wine. I was a beer guy, you know? That's something that's burned in my memory of that aha moment where, holy shit, you can, this, you can really enjoy this glass of wine and, and taste the flavors. And it's a lot like food. And then when you pair food with it, it elevates it and you're getting different tasting notes. And yes, I've had a million glasses of wine since then, some of them probably better, but I always go back to that one as one of my favorites because of how it opened my eyes and my palate really. And from there, I started doing wine dinners and I do these guest chef dinners all over the country at some really cool restaurants. And I, I like to to pair not just a straight up wine dinner, right? I do, there's a, one of the courses is a wine. One's a local craft beer. One's a cocktail that the restaurant specializes in. So it's an overall experience about all of hospitality. And I feel like you sit and you have six glasses, different wine, it kind of gets muddled and it's not as fun. And yes, that Fremark Abbey Cab Franc was, it was a light bulb moment for me to actually be able to enjoy wine. There's a photo of you. I don't remember if it's in the book or if it's on your website, but it's, it's you and you're pouring a bottle of wine into a glass. It's red wine, but you're staring pretty much, you know, straight at looking straight at the camera. How many times did it take to get that shot without like overflowing, spilling? Like was somebody like, stop, stop, stop pouring? Or like, how did that all go? It was actually only one. I guess being comfortable in front of the camera and having confidence to do what you're doing always makes for a better picture. So I just started pouring it as I pulled up and just with a steady hand, looked directly at the camera and didn't look and, and there it was, click, you got it. So it, it was one of those cool things that was captured on film, but it's just a, a lot of stuff is really about having the confidence to attack it and do it. Uh, you know, that's the first step. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a, just a one-take situation. What's next for you professionally? I mean, I know you said you got the thing at the Super Bowl that you're doing. Obviously, you have different dinners and, and stuff like that with your clients, but is there anything else on the horizon that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, Newport Wine and Food, which is really cool. We're already, we've already been planning it. It's not till September, but there's so much that is involved in doing that and dinners at local restaurants and pairing, bringing in chefs from all over to do pairings with these specific wines and VIP tents. And so that takes up a lot of my time and, and I enjoy it. But uh, yeah, the Super Bowl, Sobu Wine and Food, working with some really cool upcoming people. People say, what's the end game? And kind of 
doing what I want to be doing. You know, I'm, I'm getting to travel. I'm getting to do different events, which not knocking the restaurant business, but if I was stuck in a restaurant kitchen, I get bored fairly easily about doing the same menu over and over. And then you get pushback from people about changing menu and da da da. So I get to do a new menu in a new state, a new group of people, new wines almost every night. And then to do the bigger fun events, that's really cool. And, I, and as soon as we get off this, I'm going to think of 10 things that I have upcoming that I should have said. Um, but for February and March, you know, I'm down in Florida quite a bit, in Miami, in Boca, in Wellington, and uh, and then the spring hits, which is like super busy time for me, spring and summer as a private chef, and then fall with uh, Newport Wine and Food and a couple other fun things going on. And to be able to do, do something like the Super Bowl, where I'm not going as a, a ticket holder, I'm going to be part of the event and uh, working with other chefs that actually I brought in, and we're working with these NFL legends that's pretty cool for me to be up on stage cooking with the uh, NFL Hall of Famer and uh, maybe doing a tailgate dish or whatever we end up doing. But that's going to be pretty cool. This question uh, comes from previous guest on the podcast, Chef Edgar Victoria. He's the owner chef of Alibre in Nashville, Tennessee. He left behind for you. What would you tell yourself 10 years ago to do different? That's a tough question. It, maybe 15 years ago uh, or something like that, but I, I'm happy with the last 10 years. As a chef, maybe if you have hindsight 2020, be better with money, save more. I mean, that's for anybody, not just in the hospitality business, but and not for me, but for anybody else. What I would tell people that are going to have a career that spans over a decade is just do not burn any bridges. If you're going to leave a job, have a two-minute conversation with that chef or that GM because there may be a situation where you want to go back there or that chef is opening a new restaurant or that GM is now in charge of something. And if you leave someplace on good terms, they're going to call you back. So whether it's a, a job or a company or a client, that interpersonal communication is huge. Like there's so many things that could be saved with a two-minute conversation because I know when I was a younger chef and a couple years in the business, you just, you don't even want to give two, two weeks notice. You just want to bounce around. You don't even think about the bigger picture. But looking back, you say, if I had a two-minute conversation with that guy, he probably would have been somebody that I could have had in my corner moving forward for new opportunities. Or maybe you have an opportunity for them, vice versa. So don't burn their bridges. Keep relationships, uh, you know. Every business, whether it's culinary field or restaurants or you're in marketing, it's all about people. So it's conversations and keeping great relationships. What's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest? What are some of those aha moments in your career? Can you go back 10 or 20 years and say, well, when I had this bottle of wine, it made me think of this. Or when I you know, got this first job, it really changed everything. Because a lot of times you don't think about how things happen and you certainly don't know while it's happening like holy shit this is going to be a big turning point for me i'd be interested to hear from other chefs because uh, everybody has similar moments uh, you know i'm not unique in the fact that you have turning points and aha moments but i'd be interested to hear what some of those are from other chefs this next question comes from one of our listeners uh, if you had to choose between cooking on a private jet private yacht or private train which would you pick and why Having cooked on a yacht, and I believe a train, I don't know if I'd want to cook in the air. <laughs> I think a yacht because it's more suited to hospitality. There's a galley, there's refrigeration, there's, although it's limited and you have to be very smart about where you put things and where you store things and how you cook things. I think of those three, the yacht would be most outfitted to, for success for you. 
So the last set of questions here, we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, so nice compare and contrast across all the episodes for the listeners. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far, looking back on it? From a hard work standpoint, I worked with a chef at a steakhouse in Vermont. His name's Chris Berry. And really was the first dude that I worked with. He was the executive chef and he was an old school chef. Never got pissed at anybody. Never yelled. Always smiled. We could be doing 500 covers at a steakhouse and the grill has 75 steaks with it, all different cuts, all different temperatures. It would just be totally calm. He had that, that influence over me where you didn't have to be the chef where you throw shit and yell and freak out and that you could be calm during service and you could just, you know, have fun with it. So he was a big influence on me from that standpoint. From a chef standpoint, the chef that I worked with at Aqua Bistro, his name was Tom Siders. He taught me a lot in a short period of time about fresh ingredients, about sauces, about breaking down fish, about things like that. So those two guys, although it's been 20 years since I've worked with them, they had a huge influence on me. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? I have the same set of tongs that I use everywhere. Tongs, tongs, tongs. It's a tongs and a side towel I always have in my hands, and then a knife would be third. But I'm always grabbing hot pans and ingredients and X, Y, and Z, so a nice set of tongs that feels good in your hands. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own, so I know you don't work at a restaurant, but let's say Newport area, hypothetical, I always give a person gets stuck at the airport overnight, flight canceled. They reach out to you, hey, you know, where should we go eat? We're here for one night. You're not in town or anything like that, but you point them in this direction. Yeah, so if we're thinking Newport and you want an old school Newport, New England experience, I would tell them to go to Benjamin's, uh, which is right on Thames Street. But they have a full raw bar. They do all the New England classics. It's just um, one of those feel-good places that you go to and you you feel like you're at home. And they've been doing it for so long that it's really cool. Uh, As far as other cities... Boston, I have a chef friend who has a bunch of restaurants that just went to Buttermilk and Bourbon in Boston. It's a really cool kind of New Orleans-themed, really fun cocktails. Um, so Buttermilk and Bourbon in Boston would be a good one. Just two that come to my, to my mind would be Benjamin's and Buttermilk and Bourbon. That's a lot of bees right there. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurants. Is there any place that you have not traveled to yet, whether it was for work or for leisure, that you still want to go to? And then also any restaurant that you've never eaten at, but you'd still like to get to and try one day? Most of my travel I do is within the U.S. I've done Mexico and Canada a handful of times for different events and things like that. But pre-COVID, I had a guest chef dinner set up in London, which I never got to do, which I would love to do that again. As far as restaurants, obviously, I love Madison Park is one I have not been to yet. And that would be one I'd like to try out just to hear what all the the fuss is about. I've been to Liberta Dan, and that, that lives up to every bit of what, it should, but you just never know. You hear a lot of buzz about something. And restaurants are such personal preference that one person might give it five stars. One person might be like, eh, not my thing, right? So it'd be interesting to see what all the buzz is about with some of these places. What's the craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant when you were working in, in restaurants? Well, early on when I was in North Carolina in college, North Carolina, not synonymous with a snowstorm. They actually had a snowstorm. And the entire town was shut down for four days. There was no plows. The roads were covered with snow. My restaurant, which happened to be close to campus, was one of the only ones in the whole town with power. That was a crazy experience because 
every single person in the city was not working. They were trying to eat out and go out and drink because there was no class, there was no work. But I was in the restaurant that actually was the one that was working. So that was a weird kind of situation. And also coming from New England, we're in New Hampshire and Vermont. Like we get snow all the time. So I'm like, this is four inches, but you guys can't go to work. So that was a kind of a weird mind trick that I got stuck, you know, working those four days where everybody else was like having the best time of their lives. But I had fun in the kitchen, so it was fun. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, you know, is not healthy for you, but you just can't help yourself? Candy-wise, I'm a big Twizzlers guy. Love Twizzlers. Uh, Allergic to peanuts, so I don't eat a lot of chocolate and stuff like that. And that was something that happened much later in life. I was like 26 or 27 when when that first happened because prior to that, I eat peanut butter every day of my life almost. Uh, So I became allergic to that and kind of stopped doing chocolate. So Twizzlers was was kind of my go-to. What's one cookbook that everybody should own? You know, whether it's a home chef, professional chef, what's the one cookbook that you think everybody should have? So the one that sticks out for me when I was young and didn't know a whole lot, and if I needed something or a special or some a, a recipe, was The Joy of Cooking. I know that's old school, but it's got some really good classics, some basics, and I was able to take some of those basic classic recipes and say, well, this might go good with a dish that I've done here. Or, and, and just use it as a jumping off point, much like my cookbook, it's like, you can add as much spice or as little spice as you want. Here's what I would do, and this will make a good dish this way. But if you want to make, mess around with it and add or subtract some things, as long as we're not talking about baking and you're not using the right amount of baking powder and stuff like that. But as far as savory goes, it's all tastes, you know? So Joy of Cooking was the originally, and I mean, it's not a cookbook, but Kitchen Confidential was another one of those moments where I read that and I was like, He's talking about everything in this book that I'm living and doing right now. A lot of people, you know, rebelled against the book, but I was like, this gives people a kind of a look into what is going on. 10 Mexicans cooking in an Italian restaurant. Nobody would even, that would never even click for people. Or, you know, the drugs and alcohol that go on in the, in the world or that went on in the world back then, a lot of people didn't know anything about. So it was like a window into our world, which was I thought was pretty cool. But it's not a cookbook. It's something I would recommend for you know, somebody who's in the business for a little while and has seen some things to be like, oh yeah, I've seen that. I've done that. I saw that happen before. We kind of touched on aha moments a little bit ago, but in terms of an aha moment for a a dish that you've created, cooked, do you have anything like that? Like you can kind of point to it as, yeah, I knew I could be a professional chef when I made this. So that would be Spoon Garden circa 20 plus years ago um, where Saute chef didn't show up, and I got the call to say, "You're guess what? You're on saute tonight, and here's what you do. And I had somebody kind of looking over my shoulder, pointing. It was a chicken piccata or whatever. I can't remember the exact dish, but working that station that night was like, okay, I can do this. I know basic flavors. I know not to oversalt things or the temperatures to, you know, start with hot, hot saute pans and things like that. So just being exposed to it that first night was like, I got this. I can do this. And then, you know, fast forward 25 years later when I had my own restaurant in Vermont, I, I was the executive chef there and I could have been expediting or doing whatever, but I would work saute on a Friday night and have 27 pans going on at once and meat resting up here in this pan and sauces going on and just a million things because I enjoyed the the fast pace and the energy of it all and the, the challenge of it all. So that's the aha of like, holy shit, I can handle saute on a busy Friday night. And that's a big uh, 
coming of age moment for a young chef who might see that older chef in there like slinging pans and behind you with hot pans and slinging tongs and doing that whole thing. So that was one I would say. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody was or is. If you were, which you kind of already highlighted his book, Kitchen Confidential, you know, maybe that's the thing that always stands out to you about him. But if you weren't, you know, you were kind of a casual fan, but was there anybody else who you would have gravitated towards, uh, you know, maybe instead of him when you were coming up through your career? Emerald, as we talked about, or Yenken Cook was a TV show that, you know, we mentioned too as well. Is there anything that you kind of can recall or you're like, I always kind of never really missed that. I always watched that, you know, when I had the chance. Yeah, well, to touch on Bourdain again, just the just the way that he could articulate, whether it was in a show or in his book, what exactly what he was seeing. Some of the things that I was already thinking, but maybe just couldn't come out as eloquently as him. So when he would talk about it, it'd be like, "Oh yeah, I totally can relate to every single thing he's saying." because he's saying what I'm thinking, whether it's the fact that I get to travel around and go to different, you know, sometimes cultures, but a lot of times it's just like a different city. They do things different ways. They have different signature dishes. They have different family style things that that you may not necessarily see if you're just a kid from New England and just ingratiating yourself and trying things that you wouldn't try normally because you don't want to upset anybody or that's the culture and then that leads you to say oh shit i really like this or this is a really cool way of doing this and then that endears you to the people and you make lifelong friends so i'm a huge Bourdain fan all those people who talk shit whatever everybody doesn't have to be eric repair guy fieri if you want to make nachos and get famous for it more power to you if you want to make uh, the, the most high-end fine dining i mean there's so much room in this world for different styles and different types of chefs and personalities that, you know, anybody who takes time to tear down one type of person or one type of style, they're not focusing on the right thing. They should be focusing on something that's going to make them better. You know, things that they're going to introduce them to new flavors instead of, if you don't like somebody, that's great. Move on to somebody you do like, you know. So, like you said, Emerald was that first, uh, seeing that first entertainment side of the culinary world. With the band, with the crowd, with that whole situation, with smoke and fire. And yeah, those two guys are huge. And luckily, I've gotten to work with some of the biggest name chefs in the world, which is really cool. I've worked with Gordon Ramsay, and, and he was the sweetest guy you could ever meet. And he's a, you could say what you want, but he's a badass chef. He put his time in, and now he's a big personality. But I spent three days with him and we had lunch and had beers and she's talked about family and the really important things. And I've been lucky enough to be able to rub shoulders with some of these other cool chefs and restaurateurs who thankfully I now call friends, which is pretty cool. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Yeah, my website is chefkevd.com. That's where you can see most of what's going on, tickets to events and things like that. Social media, I'm most active on Instagram, which is at chefkevd1. And see food pictures and event pictures and celebrity or athlete pictures or what I happen to be doing. I just I'm not as active as I'd like to be. Some of the things that I do after I'm like, holy shit, that would have been great. But I just I'm so busy focusing on the event or the dish or whatever it is. I really wish that I had somebody just follow me around with an iPhone because like I just I just did these really cool play on these oysters. Uh, for Tom Lee the other day and didn't take, take a single picture. And that's something not something that I do every day. So it's like, shit, should have took a picture of that. Should have done this. This would have been cool. Should have made this real. Because when I'm doing it and doing it, I don't, I'm not really thinking about the social media stuff. And then after the fact, it's like, well, these five things would have been cool, but so I was working, you know. 
And if uh, people want to reach out to you about either, you know, chef dinner or booking you for their in-home party or whatever, just go through the website, submit through the contact portal. Well, there's a website, there's uh, a book me tab, just hit that and the uh, contact comes to me and I, my office person and I'll reach right back out to you, even if it's a recipe question or whatever, where I'm going to be next or how to get tickets to something, feel free to just reach out or you can reach out via social media to message me because I do all my own social media. Well, this was awesome to have you on. Like I mentioned, you know, everybody wanted to hear. Uh, we kind of soft pitched the episode to some of our followers on social media and, and majority of them overwhelmingly wanted to hear your story. You know, we didn't mention your name specifically. Initially, just want to keep some of that uh, hidden behind the the door until it fully releases. And, and yeah, you've just had a different style career. You know, we've talked to private chefs, but nobody who's grown and had their business kind of blown up to the level that you have. And I think that's good for people that are aspiring to maybe get into that world to hear your story, because there are different points that they can kind of probably resonate with. Hey, I was kind of in this situation and he kind of went this way. And maybe that's something I should explore. You know, it's a tough business, like you mentioned, especially being a private chef, because it's all on you. You know, you have to take when you first start out, all these different jobs that maybe you don't want to take, but you have to, to create that network and continue to grow and everything. And now you get to do really cool events and stuff. And that's kind of the carrot and the stick. Like you could eventually make there, but you got to put in the hours and, and put in all the work, you know, to get there. So it's really cool to, to see you kind of grow and, and have that success to where you're at. I don't know when, you know, we'll ever uh, overlap and wherever you're at, you know, Newport wine and food festival sounds like a cool deal. You know, I don't think we've ever really been to a wine and food festival. So I have family up in the, the Massachusetts area, so maybe we'll we'll kind of time it all and, and maybe be, get a chance to stop in and check out the food festival or, or something like that. If you ever need anything from us, you know, feel free to reach out. It's always an open invitation to anybody who comes on the podcast to come back if they have a new event and want to talk about it or new menus, whatever. Um, we always want to support everybody as much as we can because, you know, they come on and give us their time and support us. So I appreciate you having me. It's been fun. It's really, really hard. Just sitting and talking about it for, for an hour actually motivates me to, okay, well, that's exciting. That was exciting. Let's try to do something like that again. So it's just cool to reflect and talk about it and some of the stuff that's going on now. And if you're trying to be a private chef, you got to look at it as a natural progression. Like I say, you have to work in the restaurant business, right? You have to hone your skill. You have to get that technique and you have to know how to grill steak and you have to know how to do these certain things. But you have to also be personal. Like I'm on stage every single night. I'm standing in front of 15 people who I don't know and I'm explaining the dish and I'm putting it in front of them and putting my heart on a plate, if you will. And you have to be personal with them and so they can have a really cool experience. It's not just like a catering situation where you're dropping off some chafing dishes and leaving. It's a whole, you're, you're part of somebody's dinner party. And I get texts and emails and Instagrams Almost immediately after I leave, or the next morning, it was like, last night was amazing, the wine, and this. Um, so, you know, you've got to be able to put yourself out there a little bit. Obviously, the food part is huge, but you also have to be able to deal with people and be calm and walk into somebody's kitchen that you've never seen before. And if, if only one burger works, you got to be able to work. You know, so anybody who thinks private chef world is easy, they got you got some other thing coming because you could be stuck in the Hamptons without a walk-in full of stuff in a restaurant. If something goes wrong, you walk in the walk-in and replace it. Easy, no problem. If you're stuck somewhere, you have to be able to think on your feet and make things work. So for me, it was a natural progression. I looked at it. How can I still do what I love? 
still cook for them, still do events, still be involved with people on the hospitality level and not be stuck in a restaurant. So it's just about evolving and moving forward. Yeah, again, appreciate your time and uh, I'll let you get back to the rest of your day, but uh, stay in touch and uh, we'll talk soon. I appreciate it. Big thanks to Kevin for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day, you know, spend some time away from his family to chat about his career, reaching out, following along what we're doing and being interested to be a part of it. That's always cool to see and cool to get those messages from people who are interested in coming on the podcast. You know, they want to be a part of it. That's pretty awesome to get that feedback from people we haven't even encountered yet or maybe didn't know about and hear their story too as well. So that always kind of reinvigorates what we're doing when we get those messages because it's like, okay, cool. People are paying attention. You know, you can look at all your stats and listeners and all this stuff, but there's no real great barometer except for kind of feedback that comes in. One player app will say this, the other one will say that. There's no universal metric system. You know, it's not even close to like something like the Nielsen ratings for TV. So it's all over the place. Kind of have to do a lot of manual tracking on your own to kind of just even get a ballpark of like, who's listening, where they're listening, which episodes people like the most and stuff like that too as well. So any feedback is always warranted, uh, even the stuff that you think you know needs to be improved and whatnot, um, as long as it's constructive and not uh, insulting or just negative for the sake of being negative, there's actually a point to it. We do encourage that too as well because we're always looking to improve too as well, whether it's you know the audio quality or the questions or the type of guests or whatever. So we always want to make it better and better each episode for the listener uh, too as well and keep you guys uh, interested and engaged in what we're doing. But follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com and make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, whether it's YouTube or Apple or Spotify or whatever. Episodes drop on Thursdays. We'll have some mini episodes, mini update episodes for you guys too as well. Drop it on Tuesdays. So until the next episode, which I think will be a mini episode actually, which will be dropping on Tuesday, we will talk to you guys then.